Hi, and welcome to another episode of the RCH Kids Health Info Podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Margie Danchen, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my good friend and paediatrician, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Welcome, Lex. Thanks, Margie. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that came to the fore in 2020, which was an unprecedented year for all of us with COVID, and that's about anxiety in children. It was an incredibly stressful year, and I think particularly for children um, with the transition to home learning uh, during different periods and loss of significant events um, that they had been looking forward to, significant times on screens and, and, and increases in fatigue. There were so many reasons in 2020 why kids could potentially start to become anxious. And it was certainly something that we saw in our clinical consultation with children and families and of course a lot of that was by telehealth. Lex, what what are your thoughts around uh, what you saw last year? Yeah, look, I completely agree. I think amongst my own children, my friends' children, plus all the patients that we see, we've seen an increase in um, presentations of anxiety and recognition in kids and teenagers, as well as um, more severe presentations than we may have seen previously. And we've actually seen... um, younger kids presenting earlier with anxiety. A lot of the challenges for for the children and for their families is, you know, how to get on with life post-lockdown. So uh, going back to school after remote learning proved challenging for some children. It was quite stressful with their friends and reintegrating socially. But also a lot of kids had felt they'd missed out on learning or they might have got behind with their learning. And I think that's going to be something now moving into the new school year after the holidays and a break away, that sort of anxiety about getting back to school and, and for teachers too, what gaps kids may have in learning as well. Absolutely. So I think the school holidays has been a great time for families and children to reset and and get ready for a new year. But I think we have to be mindful as parents just to watch out for those signs of anxiety leading back to going to school. So joining us in the studio today to help us unpack anxiety in kids and particularly a discussion around anxiety in teenagers is Dr. Rick Haslam, paediatrician and head of mental health at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Rick. Hi, Maggie. So, Rick, let's start talking about how anxiety may present in kids and particularly how it might differ, you know, from younger to to older children. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is that fears and worries are a normal part of uh, children's development. It's when they become really impactful and affecting their their wider life. And there's a number of ways that that can be apparent. But the sort of things that you might see might be physical symptoms. So in younger children, we might see tummy aches or headaches. We might see um, a loss of appetite. We might see tearfulness. Um, We might also see um, uh, avoidance, avoidance of certain situations like social situations. But of course, Anxiety isn't just what's obvious to a parent. There's also an internal experience, the thoughts and the feelings that go with that. And that's what's much harder for parents to see. And that's often what parents tell us is, you know, they're often surprised if we say, you know, we, we think a child is very anxious and that might be underlying some of the, the reasons why they present to a doctor. And, and parents have often just not 
not recognise those signs at all. Yeah, it's really hard to pick up that internal experience of yeah. kids. Um, it's the outward things that we might see as parents. I mean, I think kids who are anxious can also present with uh, sort of a short fuse or um, you know difficulty sleeping. Um, they might be restless. You know, these are things which don't immediately make parents think, look, anxious. They might think, you know, problems with their behaviour, for example. As parents, if we've suffered from anxiety ourselves, we might um, be more attuned to it and might recognise some of these signs in our kids that this may be anxiety because we do know that anxiety can run in families. Yeah, it's a bit of a two-edged sword, isn't it? If, if you've experienced anxiety, as many of us have, um, perhaps as a child, then you know what your children are going through. But on the other hand, what you're wanting to do is to um, model coping and to support them with developing that flexibility and resilience and ultimately that independence that you want them to have. So it's, a, it's the challenge of the the parent that they can kind of recognise the anxiety, but they also need to put their own anxiety to one side and support their child. Mm. And Rick, you know, I think it's also hard for parents to know when they should think about seeking help. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, fears and worries might be pretty normal. And in certain situations like moving house or changing schools, we might expect to see a degree of anxiety, kids starting in, um, you know, in prep or foundation. So I think if there's not an obvious explanation and if it's going on for more than a couple of weeks and if it's really having a, an impact on the child's sleep or their concentration or their relationships, if they're not going to cricket practice or if they're not going to, um, they're not able to get to school, then I think that's that's really a warning sign. And Lex, what are some of the kids that you have seen or how has anxiety presented to you? Do you think that's changed in the last year or so with COVID? I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're seeing it a bit younger. Yeah. So in some of the preteen kids, we might not have thought about anxiety when they present to us with abdominal pain or headache or decreased appetite or fatigue, tiredness. We might have thought, oh, is there a medical cause for this? But actually we're becoming more aware how important and how influential the environment's been and particularly during COVID. Yeah. I think what I noticed too is with the home learning and the social restriction and being at home, children became quite flat um, and, and quite disengaged and clearly just missing their friends. And it was interesting for me as a parent and a paediatrician to realise that actually the phone wasn't the be all and end all and that actually my own children were really missing contact with mm. their friends. But in fact, that was also anxiety. There was so much anxiety that I was seeing underlying that. And that wasn't necessarily some of those physical symptoms, it was almost withdrawal, um, what, what I noticed a lot. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Margie. I think that the routines that we have, whether it's going to school or sports or other activities, really help kids to um, have a sense of their identity. And the loss of that, the loss of those peer connections and the loss of those routines is, can often lead, as, as you've said, many kids to just sort of withdraw. And I think what I've noticed actually over the last few years is amongst kids, there's a language around this. I don't think when I was growing up that any child mentioned the word anxiety or talked about their own mental health. But I think they're learning a lot in schools. They're learning a lot on social media. They're talking to other people and adults. And so we are actually seeing kids say to us, I'm feeling anxious. 
I'm feeling flat. That's quite new, I, I think, agree. as pediatricians. Yeah. So I think what we've really um, discussed now is just, you know, how differently anxiety can present um, with different age groups. And I suppose for parents to look out for those signs that we've talked about, not only the physical symptoms, but I suppose that withdrawal and, and, and that being flat and to think about seeking help. Now it'd be good to actually move on and talk about particularly anxiety in teenagers because that's something that we have seen a lot of through COVID um, and I think has become particularly sort of prominent. So, so Rick, what would you say for teenagers in particular, what are some of the signs that you look out for? Yeah, I mean, adolescents or teenagers are going through you know, obvious and, you know, dramatic physical changes, but perhaps even more striking are the brain changes and the changes in their um, sort of social and emotional development. Their whole world is becoming a lot more complicated and their ability to perceive relationships and um, uh, and to think about their place in the world, their identity, if you like, is is just flourishing and in many ways that can be really challenging for, for, for adolescents. So typically you'll see teenagers concerned about their appearance, about fitting in and having friends, um, you know, the, the likes or the comments or the failure to comment on their postings. Um, well, that's what I was going to say. Just listening to you, I'm thinking, gosh, the impact of social media on teenagers and, you know, a, a party popping up that they haven't been invited to or attended on Instagram can have the most massive impact, can't it? You know, teenagers, adolescents, um, they'll often keep their worries or their anxieties to themselves. And I think it's really important for families and for parents to not have this as some sort of shameful or stigmatized uh, kind of kind of thing I think that it's normal and typical for kids to have stresses and anxieties and the more that parents are able to bring that conversation up and say look I've noticed that or just listening out for signs of uncertainty signs of um, uh, withdrawal I mean one of the key things that happens with teenagers who are anxious is that they'll avoid They'll, they'll stay away from whatever it might be. And really what we're wanting for our adolescents is that they can, as I said, develop their independence and resilience. And so avoiding it is a short-term solution but a long-term problem. And I think that's really the challenge for parents. What is normal teenage behaviour and when is it okay to leave them alone and not delve into it if they don't want to talk Especially to you? Especially if they're spending hours in their room, Absolutely. as mine do, and, with the door shut. It can be really challenging to get them to actually converse about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I guess that once again, as, as we were sort of talking about with younger kids, what parents can see is what's in front of them. They can't really see what the thoughts are that are going around and around in their head. Actually, listening to you, Rick, I was thinking like with my son, I would say, well, let's go, because he's obviously been on his L's, let's go for a drive. And it's amazing what comes out in a two-hour car drive, maybe not initially, and not having that face-to-face contact, that side-by-side is all less intimidating, because I find if I go into the room, or even speaking to families, you know, of some of my patients, if you ask them what's wrong and you confront them, you get very little back. Yeah, I mean, you do have to be a bit opportunistic as a parent with, with teenagers. I mean, one thing that might be worth talking a little bit about is there's some fantastic research that's been done by uh, Nick Allen, Professor Nick Allen, who came from the University of Melbourne and who's now in Oregon in the US. And he's really interested in the development of anxiety and depression in adolescence, so moving from childhood to, to adolescence. And, you know, I think we would all understand that what parents... 
uh, can do with with their kids is be positive and warm and patient and supportive. And probably most of us as parents would like to think that we're doing that most of the time. But what his research shows is that um, there's a significant sort of protective factor against the development of anxiety and depression in teenagers if parents are able to keep that warmth, that patience, um, that calmness even when they're disagreeing with their kids. And that's where it can get quite tricky oh, for that's parents. that's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is that really about keeping the communication channels open, even though you might not, you know, you're being a parent and you're setting boundaries and you're disagreeing? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's it's easy for us to lose our temper and to, um, you know, perhaps not be all that patient and not really listening out for what a young person is saying. And, you know, we're only human as parents, but I think what Nick Allen's research suggests is that um, as much as we can, being warm and optimistic and positive with our kids in the good times is great, but it's also something we've really got to work on when there's disagreement and friction. If young people have that experience with their friends, with their peers, with their teachers, and particularly at home, it's you know quite protective against further development of anxiety or depression. And one thing, Rick, we were chatting about was around with teenagers how poor sleep can cause anxiety. Um, But, of course, you know, if they're anxious, they can't sleep. So sleep is so tricky in teenagers and we all know they like to stay up late, but kind of trying to help them have some sort of good sleep hygiene is so important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's there's a hormone, melatonin, which is released from uh, part of the brain, and that really sort of signals it's time to go to sleep. Um, And uh, similarly, sunlight hitting the back of the eyes in the morning signals wakefulness, it's time to get up. What happens with teenagers as they um, progress 12, 13, 14, 15 is that the release of melatonin happens later and later. So their body clock, their time for going to bed, is the signal happens later and later. And that's a trap because kids, of course, need to, teenagers need to get up for school. So getting that really minimum of eight hours of sleep, of, of you know, good quality sleep, um, you know, in a dark room that's not too warm, that hasn't got interruptions, there isn't a phone there to distract them. Um, getting that eight hours of sleep is really difficult if your melatonin's being released at 10.30 at night because you've got to get up for school. So I think, you know, routines are very important and, and also parents helping teenagers even on the weekends to to get up in the morning I think the sort of catching up of sleep is a bit of a um, it doesn't really work that way and so um, what we often see is teenagers sleeping in catching up on sleep on the weekend and then they'll crash on Monday morning because they're not ready to go to sleep until um, until late and I think The management of sleep in anxiety is probably underrated. I think it's one of the most important factors. And I think as a paediatrician, the other things I prescribe every time I see a child or teenager with anxiety is exercise. I think that's also um, underrated and a good reasonable diet with limited caffeine. I think uh, from personal experience, I know that caffeine can really get me agitated and edgy if I'm having too much and can increase my anxiety. And I think there's research around that. So exercise, sleep and nutrition 
are what I prescribe as a doctor as my first line management for anxiety. You know, for some very sporty teenagers, they're always going to be involved in school sport, club sport, but for also for a lot of other teenagers, there's a real drop-off in exercise and that can really affect them if they're not moving. So you're quite right, Lex. I think just encouraging them to get up and to move their bodies is so important in, in terms of managing anxiety. Yeah, it's just reminded me, Margie, that I guess one of the most powerful ways to reduce kids' screen time is if parents are able to model Mm. that they're not on their phone the whole time. And it's a bit the same with behavioural activation or with exercise that I think, you know, up to a point, if, if parents and families have that healthy lifestyle of activity each day, you know, the sort of 10 or 20 minutes of, you know, good exercise, then um, even if the child's not particularly enjoying it, it will actually help with them uh, setting them up for a good night's sleep. And it's actually incredible how much the child's mood can change just you know, with 20 minutes or 40 minutes of exercise, you can have a completely different kid who was angry and surly and sulky who actually comes back and starts to engage. So Rick, separate to the things we've just talked about now around really focusing and managing sleep and, and exercise and a good diet. If, you know, anxiety is a real problem, what is, what is your first-line approach to helping kids with anxiety? Yeah, so, I mean, anxiety disorders, so a clinical problem with anxiety, a real impairment um, that's lasted for a number of weeks and it's affecting the child's sleep or eating or uh, school attendance, for example. It's really common. Maybe 7 to 10% of children will have this. It's not that, that unusual. I think that, um, you know, there are, there are quite a number of online resources that are suitable, particularly for teenagers, to... Um, basically provide therapy for themselves, often in a, um, a moderated way. Um, so I think online resources are one thing, but um, psychologists and mental health clinicians can provide therapies that are really very effective for reducing anxiety. And, um, you know, typically through a GP and a mental health plan would be the first way that um, adolescents and teenagers might be able to uh, access that therapy. And I think, as you said, just highlighting that it is common and that there's no shame in taking your child to a GP. I still think sometimes there's some stigma attached to the label of anything to do with mental health, you know, anxiety, depression. And, you know, I would just really encourage families and parents to just go and seek help if they're worried about their child. Absolutely. But I also think it's important for a child to have someone to talk to. And if I've got a lot of patients and and people I know that they really struggle to get their teen to a psychologist, they just put up a barrier and will not go. I think going through the GP, going through a school counsellor, even having a mentor like a sports coach or um, a chaplain at school, a family family friend, an uncle, an auntie, just the child having someone other than their family members that they can talk to about stuff can be really powerful. But also alerting those people if they're worried about this child and it's going, you know, a bit further than they feel comfortable managing, that's when it's really important to seek professional help. And Rick, if a, fa- if a parent does take their child to a psychologist, what, are, what can they expect? What are some of the strategies that psychologists use with kids? Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's the, the the interventions are really very, very effective. Um, you know, seven, eight, nine times out of ten, you'll see quite dramatic reductions in anxiety with with the sorts of therapies that are for which there's really good evidence. So one of the common ones is called cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT, 
which helps uh, essentially the psychologist or the mental health clinician is sort of a coach, if you like, and is helping to identify those thoughts, feelings and behaviours that I mentioned and then helping the young person to develop a mastery of those thoughts, feelings and and behaviours. It's not getting rid of the anxiety, it's being in charge of them again. So I think, as I said, um, the sort of avoidance that that is our natural sort of human reaction, a bit like when you see a spider, you know, um, that, that avoidance in the short term makes sense, but actually in the long term doesn't help. So a psychologist, for example, delivering CBT over... Uh, 8, 10, 12 sessions with a young person will help them to understand the uh, patterns of thoughts that are in their mind and to um, develop a mastery of whatever the situation might be. And I often describe that um, to kids themselves about having like a little tool belt or a toolkit of of things that they can use and pull out when they have some of those physical sensations like their heart racing or that butterflies or that terrible pit of your stomach feeling or that sweating or that you know horrible feeling that we all recognise um, as anxiety. Just having some strategies they can use. Um, there's relaxation strategies as well that, as you said, they might be able to access online or, or, or learn through the psychologist. Yeah, and I think through schools now, they're, they're really focusing on this well-being and mindfulness and they're teaching them about relaxation relaxation, body scanning, deep breathing. And I think that's really brilliant that we've got to that stage. Um, It helps with sleep, but also if a child is having an acute panic episode or or significant anxiety, knowing how to calm their breathing down and calm themselves down in the moment is a really good tool. So I think, you know, a toolkit and psychology and appropriate intervention is really helpful. So talking therapy. What happens you know, if it goes beyond that, if the psychologist is worried, if if the parents are worried about um, significant anxiety or lowered mood, is there a role for medication in that case? Yeah, I mean, the, the first line is really always the psychological therapies to help families, to help young people to recognise those thoughts, to um, develop, as you say, a, a, a number of strategies to um, improve the um, the relaxation or response to these these sort of thoughts and worries. There are medications which are prescribed by GPs, paediatricians, uh, child psychiatrists, which are very effective, again, for anxiety and which are reserved as a sort of a second line where, um, you know, for that minority of uh, children and teenagers where it's really very impairing, they might be um, really struggling with eating difficulties or with sleep or with um, concentration at school or even getting to school. Yeah, we so- see, We actually have seen a lot of children um, who post-COVID have really struggled getting back to school mm-hmm. and with school refusal. And I think anxiety is a big driver of that. Yeah, so similarly sort of effective are these uh, the medications that we would prescribe for anxiety. These are also medications which in adults and in older adolescents are used for depression and quite quite mm-hmm. effective for that as well. And Rick, I think, you know, obviously no one wants, no parent wants to give their child medication if it's not needed. But perhaps can you make just some comments around if anxiety is not treated, what does that mean for a child moving into adult life and the impact on their life? I suppose just highlighting to, to parents why it is important that we treat it well. Yeah, so children who have anxiety disorders or anxiety difficulties are likely to continue to, in a sort of an up and down, waxing and waning sort of way, 
uh, continue to have periods of anxiety and can go on and have educational difficulties. They can go on and develop depression. Um, there can be other uh, behavioural difficulties they might experience. One thing that can happen with young people who are very anxious, they, they can develop drug and alcohol problems, in fact. So in thinking about the longer-term effects with anxiety, one of the things that a lot of parents worry about is self-harming or risk-taking behaviours. And I think that um, the first thing to say is that they're best understood as a sign of distress, of the of the child being distressed and not feeling they can manage. And I guess as a parent, it's important that you're able to place that with other signs of it, of your child not coping or not managing. So if there are other things that are present, um, then all the more reason to seek some help. As you said, Margie, there's no sort of shame. There should be no stigma no. in seeking help. And it's very likely that seeking help will con- considerably benefit that, that child, not just right now with whatever they might be facing, but actually for the rest of their life. Perhaps one thing to add is that obviously dealing with um, a young person who's really withdrawn or, or anxious can be really stressful for the parent themselves and, and very distressing actually. Um, so, you know, it's important that they seek help for themselves. Occasionally they can go um, and, and see a psychologist or have someone close to them who can support them. So it's a bit like pulling the oxygen mask down in the plane and looking after yourself first to support everyone else in the family. It's really interesting. So I think what we've talked about today is that anxiety is there. It's present in our kids and in our teenagers. So as parents, we have to recognise some of the symptoms, which are often um, medical issues, so tummy pain, headache, etc., and start having the conversations. Once we recognise it, start with exercise, nutrition and sleep, but don't hesitate to get professional help through the GP and then a psychologist for talking therapy initially. And then at the pointy end, if we're really worried about kids, it's really important to get them seen by you know, experts in mental health. Absolutely. So look, I think that's all we have time for today. So it's been an incredibly helpful discussion. Uh, we do have lots of resources linked in our show notes, um, including mental health resources for children. But Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. That was fantastic. Been a great pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and post a review. And thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.